Hey fans, my name's Philip, and I don't know what to get my mom for Christmas. Hey Philip, I gotta admit, uh, hey fans, this is Mark, and I gotta admit, I gave up on that a long time ago. But I have to say, cheese cutters and trivets go a long way. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a really good tip. Um, but this brings up a good question, which is, which ATP World Tour uh, player has to buy his wife the most expensive Christmas present? <laughs> that's a great question. Now, I think we both know the answer, as most tennis fans know the answer, to last Christmas. Um, <laughs> I believe he had just lost his spot as number one in the world. <laughs> yeah. But my, my guess is that probably cost him two or three Christmases. Uh, you know, she delivered him a baby this year, so I think you got to go with Djokovic on that. Although he could always use the excuse that he didn't make a lot of prize money, so proportionally it should be low. But I, I think Djokovic, at least for last Christmas and this, is the guy. But I, there's another answer I'm, I'm sort of doing around with in my brain. How about you? So I thought Djokovic was just the obvious one. Um, he's been he's he's been in the doghouse for a year and a half now, and I, I have to say I miss the Joker who was cheating on his wife with Bollywood actresses. Uh, think it was good for tennis but yeah, it's probably good, for, good for his personal life that he is you know spending so much energy on appearing to be a very good person you know posting about unicef and adding agassi as his coach and so on um but yeah i think uh maybe maybe a new house is in the cards for them <laughs> what, what do you think so, so you're agreeing with my answer? Or yeah, I'm agreeing. It's, it's like in, in, in perpetuity that he has to buy this expensive Christmas gift. And yeah, the only other possible answer to that is maybe Rafa won because he did win a ton of money last year. And number two, for not actually giving her the ring yet. So maybe, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe that's his way of sort of buying off, you know, this sort of the prolonged relationship or whatever they have. But yeah. My brother and I at the U.S. Open were just appalled that Rafa trusted Tiger Woods in his player's box so close <laughs> to his girlfriend and sister. Is that, or is that, right, 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 fair enough, fair enough. You always look better by comparison, though, right? So, so the least expensive Christmas gift, I would have to say, is uh, Roger Federer. He's given her enough already. Yeah, that's a tricky one. I, mean, <laughs> I, I can't imagine. I don't think he's allowed to, to, to scrimp on much, but I don't know if the uh, expectations are that high either. I think, you know, just... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She doesn't come... You know, as, as, as much gold as there is, she doesn't come across as a gold digger, and he doesn't have too many holes to dig himself out of. So you, know, you got you got to give the guy some props. He'd yeah. probably buy some more expensive... He'd probably buy some more expensive Christmas gifts for the maid. <laughs> Okay, so um, we both have five questions that we want to ask the other, um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna start. Um, I want to get into your personal um, tennis stories. Um, I've you've probably had a you probably have a lot. Just you've played so much and you've coached so much, and so. My first question is, what's the best story you have either from a tennis match that you played in or one that you coached or were somehow a part of? Yeah, so, you know, when you ask the question, I, I do, I've had some good comebacks, but I have to say I was a high school choker. You know, if the match got tight, I generally lost about 80%. So I do know that there was this, this girl in, in the high school that I was trying to impress. 
Uh, she ended up being my prom date, but I think she had said yes already. Uh, <laughs> and we were playing an eight-game pro set, and I was winning seven love. I think she got there. Um, I kind of gave the guy a courtesy game because he was sort of a friend of mine. So let's say I gave him a courtesy game at 7-1. I gave it like 90% of my, my best 7-2. She showed up at 7-2, and I, I proceeded to lose uh, the next seven games. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> including, including double faulting, like two or three times in the last game. So that, that's like a good segue because uh, when I started coaching high school tennis here, we had a, we had a, like a district tournament, and the schools that had middle schools could use their middle school players. So I had a kid, I think he was a sophomore or junior, and he was playing against a sixth grader, and he was up uh, 6-1, 5 love, 30 <laughs> love. And you see where this is going. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he, he lost. To a sixth grader. <laughs> he lost. Like, uh, well, see, he had to win. The other guy had to win seven games in the second set, and then I think the other guy won like 6-4 in the third. So, yeah, he proceeded. But then I, I have to say, a couple years later, I mean, so I was always compassionate on the people who choked. Like, I would be mad at them for like a minute or two, and then I would, I would refer back to my own experiences. But uh, What's worse, I, I, losing to a post or a not like a quite post-pubescent teenager, like 13 or 14, or no, losing to like a girl? 11. No, I've lost to both. I lost to the number one at, what's that uh, good Canadian squash school? Um, uh, West, Western or something? Western, Western Ontario. Ontario. Yeah, so back at the Naval Academy. I did lose to their number one after stepping on the court and saying, oh, you know, hi, I'm supposed to play against green. So can you go get, I guess, you know, uh, if you, can you go get green? And she says, I am green. <laughs> she demolished me, but I've had that. No, I definitely losing to her. I, I was pretty proud that I got a game off her because she had been number one in Canada for the 18 and unders. Yeah, but, if uh, a girl beats you, it means she's good. Whereas if like a 14-year-old beats you, it means you're old. Yeah, but this wasn't a, I mean, this kid was like 11 that lost to me. Oh, no. That beat our junior. But we did have one match as a coach where uh, we were, um, it was, uh, the matches were four out of seven. And so we were down 3-2 after doubles. And in both the doubles matches, we were down a set. Um, and 5-3, I think one of the matches was like we were down 40 love. And, and the other match, we were down 40-15 match point. And somehow, and literally, we saved up the match points at the same time and came back and, and won them both in a third set tiebreaker and ended up, that was like a regional round of 16 match, and we won like two tight matches after that. So that, that was a good coaching thing. I feel like I felt vindicated for all my, my, my chokes as a player uh, and even a little bit of my, my missteps as a coach when, when we came back and won that. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I, I'm compassionate. I think that, as, as you probably know, like people think that, you know, the match is won or lost to like, the end of the third set it's really like that one game in that in that prior set that everything hinges you know you either close the match out or if you can dig a game out then the player starts to play not to lose instead of to win and you know then i think we can the coming back is not as hard as it looks yeah i've totally been there um cool well those are great stories would you have so, so, speak, so speaking of recoveries or changes is there anything i don't know if you stewed over or maybe not stewed over, but at least, you know, lobbed some of the answers back in your mind last week. But is there, is, is there any question that you can remember, any answer that you would, you would modify or change uh, any player that you were bullish or bearish on? That, you know, you're maybe so, less so the one thing that I, um, uh, that I did go back and think on was 
we were talking about Ferrer, Sanga, and Burdich, and which who is the greatest uh, player who never won a Grand Slam, um, and we hadn't really considered players from past generations. So I went back and looked at um, looked at a list of Wikipedia Grand Slams um, to see who had made a finals but had never won it. And I came up with a couple more players who uh, are in the Ferrer Burdich uh, um, Sanga category, which is uh, Guillermo Coria, uh, Mark Filipousis, David Nalbandian, and Cedric Pielin. Um And out of those four, who do you think uh, history remembers uh, best? So you're answering a question with a question. Sort of, yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, I think of those four, I mean, Peeling, you know, I, I think he was an overachiever. Coria, he may have cramped up as he was close to winning a match, but, you know, he was, he, I think he was designed more as a soccer player than as a tennis player. You know, Nalbandian probably beat a lot of the stars. Um, I know he, he went crazy or something at a Queens club at a Wimbledon warm-up. He got disqualified for, like, mauling the umpire <laughs> with a ball. So he may be remembered for all the wrong reasons, but but that, I, as far as an upset special, I don't think I'd put either of those four in, in the category of, of three musketeers that I mentioned before. Oh, Ferrer. Um, yeah. yeah, I think Ferrer, Sanga, and Burdich are playing in a more difficult era. And I also um, think their primes, like, last... They, they've been there for, like, a decade, whereas uh, Philippousis was really, really good, but he was only... I think I can only uh, remember, like, four or five years when he was, like... Uh, a threat, you know? Well, in fairness, I mean, I think he had a great career. He probably could have stolen one on grass, but, but he lost to people like Federer and Sampras. He also so. was, like, ahead of Sampras, I think, either two sets to one or two sets to love at Wimbledon and then got injured. And he was playing lights out. And in the legend circuit, he's uh, crushing. Like, yeah. he's, he's doing him and, like, Fabrice Santoro are just doing really well. Well, he does well in the legend circuit, you know, on and off the court. So, <laughs> I mean, he's, he's certainly probably the cool, like, if we could trade places with any of them. Like, if you ask me which of those seven I would like to be, yeah. you know, I think he would probably Oh, be. definitely. Although I'll take I'll take any of them. Although, so, I would take Rafter over Philippousis in terms of, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. They both, I, I'm sure they both, um, you know, they had their fun. So <laughs> they both they both and, and continue to do so. so yeah, it's, it's a good question. Okay, well, okay. So my next question is: Is there something that a pro player has said or done off the court that caused you to like him more? Well, I would say that there was never a pro player that I started liking a lot just because of what they did off the court. I think uh that was something that evolved after i liked them so maybe i focused on it more i mean there may be some some layers that i frankly do more off the court and i don't realize it just because you know they're not my favorite players uh it's funny you know of course i would have said agassi because he started a school and he, i think he seemed to be a generous person from the start generous with money and generous with spirit but actually it's funny i would have you know I think if I had to choose one, I would say McEnroe, uh, because I think that he's been like uh, almost ceaselessly devoted to the sport. Yeah, that's uh, I, true. I don't know how much of it is philanthropic, but I'm sure some of it is. I know he's got this nice club, and, and maybe you interviewed some people from there for your article um, from the from the academy that he runs in New York. But he seems like he's just been the face 
of not just American tennis, but international tennis, trying to keep it relevant in whatever way possible. You know, I know he does a lot. Of, he's like kind of a renaissance man. Yeah. So I would say like he's been the most like he never really seemed to like say goodbye to the sport. You know, he just entered like through some different doors after that. So I would say probably, and I think Djokovic, I think his career, I mean, I saw a little bit of it because I was in Miami and he came to one of the fundraisers. We had a group that I was involved with here um, after the Japanese earthquake tsunami. And I think when, when he sort of pledged his time and, and some of his money to that, his career took down. I wouldn't put him at the top of the list, but I think I, I saw him in a more like mature light. So, you know, I guess McEnroe, frankly, because he's been from, I mean, he must be close to 60 and he's still... Like, he doesn't go around saying, I hate tennis. And you know, his uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm episode was pretty funny, too. Okay, so I've missed that. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll have to look at it, and then I'll, there'll be, like, a double asterisk by my answer there. <laughs> yeah, so I asked this question because I remember um, in one of those ATPWorldTour.com um, specials, they highlighted Tommy Haas <laughs> before the Hala tournament because he was... Uh, he was... Uh, He's retired. He was retiring, and this was his last holla. Um, and I remember one of the questions he was asked is, "What's the greatest compliment you've ever received from a fan?" And he says, "The best compliment." Um, and you get flattered a lot as a tennis player, but whenever a fan tells him that he really enjoys watching him play, that's what he. That's the compliment he uh, appreciates the most because. Um, at the end of the day, tennis players really are entertainers, and it really is about um, as, mu as much or more about the show than about anything else. Um, and I really, I really like that response because it just sort of showed, showed perspective. Um, and yeah, it caused me to like him a little bit more. But what you said, I already rooted for Tommy Haas just because he was like 38 and still he beat Federer this year. Which actually brings up one of your theories, which is there's no greater thing for people liking you in sports than to be old and still good. The yes. uh, Jamie Moyer theory. Yeah, I, well, I, you know, I still try to tell myself that every day. But, but it does seem like some of the expected uh, points of decline that, that the, uh, the, you know, the, the uh, sidelines have expanded a little bit. You know, that really it's, it's not a case of, oh, after... 12 to 14 years you need to call it a day but more just really when your game goes into decline and there's no you know it's not as linear as it used to be so it, it is good I think it's great for the sport uh, clearly these guys don't need the money and they're getting out there and you never know they may he may hit the court again I think even Philip Pousas, like you said I think he may have played some world tour um, you know main draw doubles tournaments as of a couple of years ago and they played one with Brian Harrison when Harrison was like 21 and Philip Pousas, May have been actually getting inducted in the Hall of Fame. Was he inducted in the Hall of Fame? I don't know if he's in I don't think he's in the Hall of Fame. He may have been, or he was in Newport for something. He may have, or he may have been introducing somebody. So it's, it's good for the sport. And, you know, McEnroe probably played uh, some, some ATP double stuff in his 40s as well. So you, you got to respect that. I would love if Federer and Nadal teamed up as, like, a doubles team when they're, like, in their 40s. Well, yeah, that, that'll be a bit of an age gap. So Federer would have to be like 46, but you never know. Or at least Fed, Fed in the 40s, maybe. Uh, or they could, you know, um, or, or, or Federer and Gasquet could play mixed doubles. So either way, you know, we'll have... Uh, Federer might still be winning Wimbledon when he's 40. <laughs> <laughs> the other guys have dropped out, probably. So, yeah. so that's, that's a good segue um, uh, to 
my next question, which is, which plan, we'll, we'll, I'll give like a seven to 10 year window, but at least since 2010, but if you want to go back to 2007 or 2008, what three, three or four players do you feel like have really overachieved during that time? You know, they're on your, your first, um, first ballot overachiever list, and then what three or four players do you feel have underachieved? Uh, if, they were to call it, if they were to call it a day, they might be remembered as underachievers. Let's say in the last seven to 10 years. In the last seven to 10 years, underachievers. I think uh, an underachiever is Bernard Tomic. Um, he was a Wimbledon quarterfinalist at 18. When we went, right? Yeah, in like 2011. The year we went. And he's just never gotten his head on right. Um, and there has to be something in the water in Australia. Uh, just because Kyrgios... I mean, he's even more talented than Tomic. It seems like he really just can't not be in the top 20 based on his talent. But, like, we want him to win majors. He, and he's he's either 23 already or turning 23 soon. Um, like his forearm tattoo says, uh, time is running out. Um, and then for overachievers, uh, I really think uh, Ivo Karlovic has done everything he could with what he was given. Uh, he's... He's, he has one shot, and he's 38, and he's still, like, getting to the finals of grass court tournaments, and uh, he's still a threat in a lot of, and a lot of, nobody wants to see him in their draw, and a similar type of player is Isner, like, he also just has one shot, but he's maxed out, and then, uh, in terms of a more, so my brother and I have a different, um, opinions on Stan because uh, Peter my brother will say that Stan is probably the biggest underachiever ever because if you saw him in that French Open finals against Novak you saw how how his best game is higher than like anybody else's because he was he beat Novak at jo at Novak's prime uh, in a Grand Slam final and Novak wasn't playing poorly. It was just Stan just raising his game. Whereas I would say Stan is like an overachiever because who wins their first Grand Slam at like 30? <coughs> Do you have any answers to that question? Yeah, good question. I, I, I would say that I think, you know, I was also looking at it by countries. So I feel like in that time, at least, since Hewitt, who was an overachiever, I would say Australia and France as a whole have underachieved, even though they've done okay. On the Davis Cup circuit, yeah. uh, Stan, I would say he's right in the middle. You know, I think that maybe week to week he's underachieved, but at times where, you know, he never won any major by default. That's for sure. Yeah, like he, he won those people, majors. He was beating people in their prime, grinding out difficult matches, coming from behind. Uh, you know, probably hopping on the court the next day after finishing like, you know, maybe a five set match that went two days. Uh, I mean, I think Ferrer certainly overachieved because it was a pretty uh, white bread kind of game, and and he maxed out what he had. I think Nishikori overachieved. Not not that I knew a lot about him, but it just didn't seem like somebody that people spoke about as like a perennial top ten. He player. also doesn't seem like uh, like a uh, a first tier athlete, you know. Yeah. Um, oh, another <laughs> another. Um... Yeah, and then Silich. I think Silich is overachieved. And then underachiever, probably Sonda. 
I think that he could. I mean, I'm, I, I think he's had a, a fun career here, but I think yeah. he, there were times where he just didn't bring it. At the, there were times where he brought it and people didn't expect it, but there were times when, when it was expected and he didn't bring his A game. The more underachievers is Monfils and uh, Verdasco. Both are just... So Verdasco, remember that 2009 Aussie Open when Verdasco was just in perfect shape and he was basically like Nadal's twin? They were just the exact same player. Um, but Verdasco only did that once in his career. Like He could have been... He was a very good player, but he could have been just top yeah. five. Fair enough. I think I think that it's your serve now. My serve, okay. Um, oh, here here's a good one. Um, which tennis player would be the best at squash? Yeah, they gotta have a long reach. Well, I mean, Ser <coughs> I think Serena wins. I think she beats them all. She actually hits a really good squash forehand on the tennis court, and she would beat a lot of guys. So I would say, you know, originally I might have said Gasquet just because of the way he moves around the court. He's got kind of good fluid squash movement. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think you got to just go. I mean, it's touch. So you, you have to. It's probably there's probably a doubles player. And I just don't follow the doubles enough. So, I, you know, I, I bet one of the doubles players probably would be the best of the bunch. Uh, but if not, I'd go with Fed. I think that he can, you know, he can slice. He can judge it by like the slice backhand and the stretch forehand, and he can go from defense to offense pretty quickly, which I think you need to do in squash. I mean, maybe, I, I think that you saw that size, like tall players were starting to make real strides in squash as a whole. The sport was starting to get a little taller, I think. I don't know for so sure. So the optimal height in squash is around 6'1", I would say. Okay. Uh, uh, there yeah, are some I, guys who are like 6'4", like James Wilstrup. Um, and then Mohamed El Shorbagi, he has sort of an adult build, and he's the best player in the world right now. Um, but yeah, it's generally not like uh, giants like uh, Sverev and Del Potro, and just like the power players like yeah. Rayanich, who would translate yeah. to the squash court. He'd, he'd trip too many times. But I, I would still go with Fed. I think he's, he's got that. Yeah. yeah. So I was thinking of this question, and it's... Definitely, the answer is definitely either Nadal, Federer, or Djokovic. Um, just because in squash, it's a combination of just feel for the game and explosive uh, first step and good physical conditioning. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, I think Federer is the best. He just has such good racket skills and his one-handed backhand, you... You can sort of see him hitting a squ His slice is so good. But uh, I think Djokovic also would be very, very good. Um, the way he's able to straighten out the backhand, one of the hardest things to do in squash is hitting a rail off of a cross court. So hitting the ball straight after somebody's hit the ball across court. And he's so good at that. And another thing is just his like elastic movement is uh, it's so natural. Yeah, good, good choices. So getting back to sort of, you know, underachievers, you have this, this great quandary of, of Andy Murray. And I'm curious, you know, what you thought was more of an aberration, the, the year that um, he rose to number one uh, or, or last year. I mean, not the second half of the year when he wasn't playing, but the first half of the year 
And a little bit based on that, that answer, what are your expectations for 2018? He seems to be somebody who, uh, who enjoys the climb, but not necessarily the view from the top of the mountain. So I'm curious where, where you're at with that. I, I legitimately believe he was injured last season. He was also just wiped out. from. He was exhausted from the effort he put into becoming number one. Uh, I definitely believe he is a top player and that uh, 2016 is more representative of who he is than 2017 was. Um, and I, yeah, I do look forward to, to seeing him at the top of the game again. I fully expect him. I'm not sure if he'll be number one again, just because uh, Djokovic is a better player. And if both of them are playing well, uh, Djokovic will be number one and Murray will be, depending on how Federer and Nadal show, when Federer and Nadal eventually show their age, like two, three, or four. So... Yeah, it's it's hard to say, Murray. Um, one thing I will say is I'm glad he did get to number one because he has he's had a career worthy of having ended a season world number one at least once. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I I don't know enough about you know I didn't see a lot of the matches when he when he dug his way up to number one, but he always seems like somebody who benefits from a challenge and maybe being under the radar a little bit. So I I think that'll work. Worked as advantage. I would see him. I don't think there's a lot of pressure on him this year. I think he found a way to take it off him by, by losing some early matches. But I think, you know, I think he'll be happy for top five. Let's say by by uh, you know by by April, and, and he'll build himself from that. And if he goes into Wimbledon under the radar, you know, watch out. Yeah. Um, open as well. Meghan Markle will be in the royal box, so that'll be a good thing. So what do you think, uh, you know, we obviously, we're racket sports people for whatever reason we have that, that tennis fan DNA. Do you think that it's a sport that has um, limited reach potential or do you feel like tennis and, and the sports powers that be just haven't branded tennis or maybe the players haven't branded themselves in the way that makes it, you know, certain, I know internationally it's very popular if you listen to the BBC and there's big tournaments going on, you know, that'll be a, a, an early part of the sports update, but it's not a big part of of the, of the American um, sports craze. So what, what, is there something you think tennis could or, or needs to do to become more, more nationally popular? Or do you think it, it's, it's sort of content, you know, appealing at a very high level to, to the demographic that uh, it normally appeals to? So in the U.S., the number one thing is just players who are winning Grand Slams. So, I mean, Roddick won a Grand Slam, and he was in a few finals, but... It really goes back to the Sampras Agassi Courier uh, era, and then before that, the Connors, McEnroe, uh, whoever the other American, Lindell um, era, um, where, yeah, I think America likes when we're winning. And so if we're winning, like Michael Phelps was winning, so Americans were watching swimming, you know? And, uh,. The U.S. men's national team does not win the World Cup, and soccer is not one of the biggest sports here. Um, but another thing, uh, so Francis Tiafo, he's very exciting. He's probably the most talented of the young guys uh, coming up. And if he wins a major, it might do for tennis what Tiger Woods did for golf, um, which was... Uh, show 
African Americans who are not from the country club demographic that it's possible for me to do this too. Um, the Williams sisters did that too. They they grew up in Compton and were playing on basically public courts, and their dad was their coach. Um, and they, against all odds, were able to do this. But um, yeah. That's sort of like an old story now. People don't remember Serena coming up. That was a really long time ago. Yeah. Like, Serena, I think she played her first Grand Slam in two, 1999. Um, it's sort of an old story. We need a new story. Um, and then the other thing on just an organizational level is uh, tennis needs to be more accessible. Like, basketball is very accessible right now. All you need is a ball um, and... A court whereas tennis you can say all you need is a racket and balls but like strings break all the time uh, a lot of times there aren't public courts like if you're living in Detroit you can only play on a public court for like three months of the year um, and so if somehow equipment were cheaper and more accessible there were more public courts and it were on TV more regularly and then just um, an icon, uh, like if like like a Sampras Agassi type icon or Tiger Woods type icon, were to really uh, start um, winning the biggest tournaments, I think that's what it would have to would have to happen. Do you it's have any ideas about this? Through. Yeah, like the brought I understand that make, that makes sense. It just needs to get into the, it needs to become the headline news, and you think when that people will jump on the bandwagon. Yeah. Um. Okay, so my next question: If you could build your perfect tennis player, endowing them with shots from anyone past or present, whose forehand, backhand, serve, volleys, movement, um, and instincts and mental toughness would you take? I mean, some would argue that Federer is all in one. <laughs> uh, he's so he's good. Close, right, he's close. He's close. I, mean, I would take, know. so for Federer. Yeah, I, I would say you'd probably want to take Ralph Forehand, which is just murderous. Um, you would take either Agassi or Djokovic's uh, backhand, because they can take it really early. Yeah. And don't miss a lot. Uh, you take, on the serve... I mean, Isner rarely loses his serve. Evo's serve, but that's a certain serve that, that may or may not lend itself to great serve and volleying. Yeah, and you I need to be 6'10 to have that serve. Yeah, you gotta you got to place that. So I think you go with Rafa's forehand. I'll just go with the current player. I'll go with Rafa's forehand, Joker's backhand, uh, Fed's serve. Um, the volley will give it to the, to the French guy who's really good at doubles, who, who lost to Isner. Who lost to Isner because he gets to the net quickly. Yeah, he's really good. Uh, you know, the speed on all surfaces, you'd probably you go with Joker and Nishikori, although Murray is no slouch. Yeah. And, you know, I have to say that, you know, if you take Murray's mental toughness, uh, he fakes it well, he acts like he's all down and out, and I think it's a little bit of an act, and I think he, he sandbags some people with it. So I would take, you look at the amount of matches where he probably win, he probably wins 70 to 80% of the matches where the set is evened up at 5-5. Five, five. 
you know, and, and so I think that he's under, very underrated with his mental toughness. Yeah, I mean, he's all, all very competitive. Guys. That, that would be my, like my perfect guess. And what about, like, instincts or, like, feel and awareness, like, just general court awareness? Yeah, it's a super question. I mean, <clears throat> you know, I, 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 I just, again, I'm not able to reference the, the past players as well as much as I watched them. Uh, I think you got to go with Fed. He just he yeah. can read speed and the point very well. There's a reason, you know. You don't get he didn't get to number one just because the other people got injured. You know, they. I think at some point during the year they realized that Fed was going to be impossible to beat even if they were bringing their A game. Yeah, and they, they took the break. I mean, that's that that amount of longevity uh, is incredible. Yeah, and he's, then he's not, some, probably just some, just to make yeah. sure he he's not number one at the moment. He he did win. Yeah. He was basically he was basically number one because he beat Rafa four times a season. He just didn't play the clay court season. Yeah, so. I, mean, I make him the de facto number one only because um, he wouldn't have won the French anyway. So he would have won two. He might have won one to third. He might have been a little injured at the open. Who knows if they would have played together? Carlo so, so, I think they both overachieved and they both you know were not expected to be in the maybe even in the top four at the end of the year. But yeah. you know his instincts. Rafa, Rafa wins on. On a, on a combination of a lot of things, particularly that just a, just a insanely good forehand and and his grit, he he will yeah. not quit. He'll never quit during a match, even if he's having feeling bad mentally. The other guys may may check out of some matches once in a while. He'll never check out. Yeah. So I so this is how I answered it. I said uh, for the forehand, I said Federer and Del Potro. Uh, for the backhand, I said Joker and Agassi, just like you did. Uh, for the serve, I said Sampras. Um, yeah, because uh, I think Sampras's serve is probably better than Fed's was. Or, and, yeah, it's more punishing. Yeah, and he's not six eleven, so you can't like have. So he's a player who has a serve, but it's not like only a serve. And then volleys, uh, I didn't see McEnroe play, but I've seen highlights, and he seemed like a very good volleyer. Um, movement, I. Uh, Djokovic and Borg, I think, are neck and neck in that. Instincts, awareness, uh, Federer, and mental toughness. Uh, I like your Murray answer. I had young Nadal. I think he was tougher earlier in his career um, than he currently is. Um, yeah. But, I yeah. Just, I like the way that he, 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 like, you know, when he loses, he barely loses. I mean, not, I'm not talking about in warm-up tournaments. I mean, in yeah. major. Like, he really... You know, if, if you give him an inch, he'll take a mile quicker than probably anybody. And I think even his losses have been very, a lot of his losses have been very admirable. Uh, but Murray, you know, when Murray's on and he's in that in that gritty phase, he is, you know, he will be down. He can be just completely out of a match and, and turn it around real quickly. So I give him, I'll just say he may not be the mentally toughest, but he's one of the more underrated on the mental side. Yeah, I agree with that. Or you, do you have any more? I do, I do. So, you know, getting getting back to height, do you feel like the game seems to be uh, shifting or skewing towards taller players? Are you surprised that more of those taller players don't use the serve and volley as their, um, you know, as kind of their, uh, their margin advantage? Or do you feel like, you know, they'll just serve and volley it in other words, that's that's not their their go to strategy, but but they can do that in in some tight spots. Are you surprised that the serve and volley game doesn't seem to be, uh, you know, directly correlated with 
the fact that taller players are, are tending to do better in the sport. Yeah, that definitely is surprising. Um, and I think the poster child for a young, tall player who doesn't serve in volley is uh, Alex Zverev. In fact, his volleys are his biggest weakness. When Federer would beat him earlier in the year, like in, uh, I forget if, I think it was Hala. Uh, Federer beats, uh, no, no, it wasn't Hala. It was one of the grass court. It was one of the no, grass I court. Of I think it was yeah. the second grass court. Yeah, yeah, it was Hala. Um, Federer, he would just hit drop shots as much as possible against Sverev, so that Sverev would have to go to the net, and it would really expose Sverev's volleys. And uh, yeah, he's not. This isn't an isolated inc- incident. Like uh, Del Potro, he he he's a good volleyer, but he doesn't serve in volley. Uh, Karlovic serves in volleys like on every shot, but he's not a top player. Um, Chilich, he doesn't serve in volley. He's a good volleyer. Um, and I think it has as much to do with like racket technology as anything else. Like the you can do more a passing shot players are more um, comfortable hitting passing shots than they are hitting volleys um, yeah what do you think is responsible for the phenomenon of no I think you said it I think they've gotten used to winning a lot of points from the baseline and so they, they don't see that as you know it's a part of a victory repertoire even though it should be uh, I don't think that the coaching, the junior tennis coaching is as advanced as it should be, and they're getting by on a, on a you know, they're one-shot wonders. Most of them are dominating the junior ranks with one shot. And I think, frankly, they're just still, some of them are timid. Yeah. I, have to say, I just don't think they let it go. You know, at least, you know, Rayanich and, and the others, they just say, okay, we're going to sink or swim, and here's my strategy. It may not always work, but I'm, I'm going to stick to my guns. And I think you know, you'll see that there's a reason why Karlovich has had such a long career and people like Isner will probably be out of the game in two or three years because they didn't, you know, take full advantage of what, of what their height could do for them. So I, I, I see that as just a, as a, um, you know, a bit of a mutation in, in, in the overall, you know, uh, men's tennis strategy. I don't feel like they've taken it. I mean, if you got the height, you might as well use it for what it's... So you think serving volley is still like a a good strategy is just people aren't doing it or you think the... yeah look at Anderson. look at the way anderson i didn't watch much of it but look at the way anderson tried to win the u.s open final you really think you're gonna win that you know staying back at the baseline yeah you know it doesn't work in the first set but by the third or the fourth i think you have i i, I think they've just been able to get away with winning too many matches from the baseline and, and i yeah. see it as a mistake i see it as a mistake that uh you know, only because I guess others were not necessarily serving in volley, but I think I think some of those players who are uh, some may consider also Rams would have won a Grand Slam or two or some more big, big tournaments. A Burditch, for example. Yeah. You know, you're just you're you're wasting an opportunity to get to net quickly and and close points out earlier. You know, you're talking about a rally going 15 shots instead of four or five. You know, a five set match that might be important. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, it sounds like what Mark wants for Christmas is more serving and volleying on the ATP World Tour. Yeah, you want to get, I'll watch, I'll watch, you know what, as, as, as sucky as I am at serving and volleying, I always feel like a little more, you know, I, I feel a little more <laughs> spring in my step when I do it, and, uh, and I think it's, it should be, I think it's, there should be a requirement. I think that 
in order to be handed a Grand Slam trophy, you have to have come to net at least you know X amount of times during the, <laughs> during the tournament. You and can spread it role. out over over your, over your seven matches if you want, but I, that, if I were ATP commissioner, I'd, I'd mandate. Yeah. Bring back. I love yeah. watching Misha Sverev just because he's the the final serve and volley or remaining. Well, I'll have to. I've never watched him play. I couldn't even say what he looks like, so I'm, I'm confessing a little bit of ignorance <laughs> on the younger players. But I'll watch him just for that reason. Okay. And uh, you know, it seems like we we got a third set ahead of us next week. So let's, uh, you know, we, we want to tell all our fans out there that, that we wish you uh, good luck with your Christmas shopping. If you want any advice on on gifts to buy your your mother in particular, ask Stella. Yeah. And uh, and and we'll reconvene you know sometime around Christmas. Yes. Um, have a good rest of the day and thanks for listening folks all right thank you